Let's uh, turn on our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. You'll find uh, the passage before us on page 874. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 2. Tonight we have the pleasure of installing Isaiah Ningen as our as the pastor of outreach. And so it's fitting to open the scriptures and turn our focus to the person of Christ. So let's look to Jesus. Before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and we do praise you for it and ask that you would submit our hearts before it now, that we would be changed by it as your Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his rich blessing to our hearing and to our living of it. Who are the enemies of Jesus? There are a number of criteria for being an enemy of Christ. There are people here within the sound of my voice who are the enemies of Jesus. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. Some of you are the seed of the serpent. Some of you are the seed of the woman. People get upset when you start you know, talking about the enemies of Jesus because that all of a sudden gets all up in my stuff, doesn't it? That has implications for my life, all of it. And I don't feel like giving it all up. It's mine. And you have no right to say those things. You know, I hear that kind of stuff from people who claim to be Christian. Calling yourself Christian doesn't make you one. There are many who claim to be the people of God who are in fact enemies of Jesus. Now, if you're the enemy of Jesus, then don't for one second think that you're one of God's people. Those things are mutually exclusive. There are places in Scripture where people speak better than they know. You see, in this case, they're the so-called church people. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They think he's just some troublemaker. They are the enemies of Jesus, but sometimes the scriptures record them inadvertently, saying things as insults, which are in fact true. So tonight, as we're about to install Isaiah as your pastor of outreach, I'd like to look at one of these incidents that highlights for us who Jesus is as we work through the text. We'll follow the outline one, the sinners, two, the man, and three, the welcome. Let's look at the sinners. Look at verse one again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus receives sinners. Praise the Lord. If he didn't, you and I would have no hope. You know, there's a story of a Scottish minister who was invited to preach at another church. And after preaching, the local pastor said to him, that was a good sermon, but it was unsuitable for here. For you spoke 
all the time about sinners, and I don't know but only one in my parish. <laughs> and was he thinking that all the decent, you know, law-abiding people in the congregation shouldn't be classified as sinners? Did he think they were too respectable for that? Well, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were thinking. They were better than the rabble that this upstart young rabbi from nowhere was hanging out with. Who was he to do this? They thought of themselves as the keepers of true religion and morality. They had contempt for Jesus because he was grow, had growing influence with the regular people, the common people. The religious leaders didn't like it and they despised Jesus for it. And that's why they say what they do. It's a statement of contempt. And for us, it's a statement of, of life because we're sinners. We're among those Jesus receives. Now, the text points out specifically tax collectors and sinners. We have to be aware that in that day and age, the Jewish people lived under Roman rule. And tax collectors worked for Rome, collecting taxes from their own people, plus whatever they could skim for themselves. So among their own people, they were considered traitors and the worst kind of profiteers and tax collectors were hated by their own people. But Jesus didn't shun them. He welcomed them. In fact, in the book of Matthew, we hear about two tax collectors, the first being Matthew himself, whom Jesus called to be a disciple. Luke tells us Jesus simply spoke to Matthew saying, follow me. And he did. How do you think that went over with the scribes and Pharisees? Here's this guy who used to collect taxes from us for the Romans, and now he's following Jesus. They must have seen some kind of change because he was no longer collecting taxes, but was following Jesus and seeking to bring others into God's kingdom. And when Jesus heard the Pharisees grumbling about it, he said in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. David Randall says this, by the righteous, he clearly means those who think they are righteous and assume that they have no need of forgiveness and salvation. The kind of person who left a certain church after listening to the preaching of a new minister for a year and gave as her reason, this man preaches to us as if we were sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes thought like that. Another famous tax collector was that wee little man Zacchaeus. And again, we see the, the Pharisees grumbling that Jesus went into his home. But Zacchaeus had encountered Jesus and his heart was changed and he made a proclamation to give half of his wealth to the poor and to pay back four times anything that he had stolen. And in response, listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, we're hearing the gospel message unwittingly expressed by the Pharisees and scribes here in Luke 15 too. When they spoke about sinners, they said it with a sneer. That's how the scribes and Pharisees saw people like tax collectors and sinners. It's like little kids going through the cootie stage, you know. Little did these scribes and Pharisees realize they too 
were included in the category of sinners. They failed to recognize that even with their high moral standards, they didn't measure up to God's standards. Understand, the Pharisees, for the most part, were not bad people. They were trying hard to keep the law of Moses and be the best they could. You couldn't fault them for the intensity of their efforts, but they lost sight of what was most important and focused on outward appearances. One commentator mentions a a Bible college that used to famously advertise that their campus was located seven miles away from the nearest known form of sin. You know, talk about adventures and missing the point. Um, Okay, there may have not been any bars or casinos or brothels within seven miles of the campus, but it doesn't matter where you are. You can never get away from sin because it resides right here in your own heart. The problem we must realize is that sin is not what is outside of us. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees for complaining that he didn't ritually wash his hands, as he says in, a little bit later in this passage. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. You know, this really highlights all of Jesus' controversies with the Pharisees. If only they would have faced the reality of their sin in their hearts, not only in their outward deeds. One famous Pharisee did. Paul tells that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but what happened to him when he met Jesus? Paul agrees with the Pharisees here in Luke chapter 15 too, but he understands this is the gospel message. Hear him in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. The fact that Jesus receives sinners is not for him something to criticize. It's the most wonderful news. Paul goes on in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Have any of you all ever read the little book, uh, Cur Deus Homo? In English, it's translated, Why Did God Become Man? The writer, Anselm, was criticized for teaching the necessity of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And this is how Anselm responded. But you have not pondered the gravity of sin. That gravity is the background against which the meaning and significance of the cross is seen. Another commentator aptly points out, putting it the other way around, if you want to undermine the teaching of the Bible on the atonement, then the thing to do would be to undermine or eradicate the whole concept of sin. Satan's working overtime, day in, day out, to do that one thing. To get you to think that sin is either no big deal or it doesn't even exist at all. If you get people to think that sin is trivial, something that just doesn't matter very much, then you can relax because you know, people will lead themselves away from God all day long as they pursue the sin in their own hearts. 
That's diametrically opposed to what the Bible clearly teaches. Sin is serious. It is serious in all of its manifestations. It is cosmic treason against a holy God and the wage of sin is death. Alienation from God forever in hell. I recently heard of a young person in my church who uh, had come under the popular teaching that hell isn't permanent. You can't believe that. If, you, know, you, you can go ahead and believe that if you want, but it's contrary to the clear testimony of the scripture. Jesus says it's a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. People go to hell don't get better, they get worse. They continue sinning. They weep because they're there. And then they gnash their teeth at God, the righteous judge, for sending them there. It's a state of constant rebellion. And when they've been there 10,000 years, they'll just have 10,000 more years of sin to their account. That's the seriousness of sin. That's why the good news of Jesus Christ is so vitally important. Where sin is taken seriously, where people are ready to admit they are sinners, there is good news. Even in this statement that Jesus' enemies intended as a put down, this man receives sinners. Praise the Lord, he receives sinners. He invites us to come to him in repentance and faith to come as sinners. He loves us so much that he accepts us as sinners. He also loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us as we are, but to shed abroad his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that leads us to the man. That's our second point. This man receives sinners and eats with them. When the scribes and Pharisees were referring to Jesus as this man or that man, they had nothing but contempt for him. He was a radical, a blasphemer. He was politically dangerous. He needed to be stopped. They had no concept that their Messiah had come. No matter to what lengths they went, even to making sure that he was put to death on a cross, they could not fathom that this man could not be stopped. There are many things we can say about the Christ, but to begin thinking of these, these three, he is incomparable. He is indispensable. He is inescapable. Think about him as being incomparable. There's no one else like Jesus. There had never been anyone like him. There was not anyone else like him, and there will never be anyone else like him. He's unique, being fully God and fully man. He was like no other, even to the point that Pilate said of him to the chief priests, I find no guilt in this man. Not only did Pilate, the Roman governor, not find any law Jesus was guilty of breaking, but no one ever found any sin that Jesus was guilty of committing. The chief priests tried long and hard to accuse him of something, and they couldn't find anything. Nothing would stick out of all the accusations they made. And Jesus says, to his disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, there's no amount of human purity or effort that will be able to achieve anything for the kingdom of God. In fact, apart from Jesus, life is meaningless. There's no point to it. Just go read Ecclesiastes. 
Look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you live your life apart from God, whether you acknowledge him or not, it will ultimately have no meaning. It's all so much vanity or meaninglessness. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Now, the, the question is, how does life come to have meaning? How is it not all so much vanity? If, as we said before, no amount of human effort will be able to secure the kingdom of God for you, then God has to do something for you. And that he has done in sending his son to save us. The problem of sin has ruined our lives from Adam and Eve forward. If there is to be meaning and purpose for us, if we are to live beyond the burdens of our sin, then we must have Christ. Christ is the center of Christianity and the only hope for man in a fallen and sinful world. Apart from Christ, our lives are a living death, and in Christ we have life. Christ is indispensable because Christ receives sinners. That leads us to the fact that Christ is inescapable. He is the one with whom we all must sooner or later come to grips. Either you will have him as your Lord and Savior in this life, or you will simply face him as your judge in the next, at the end. A day is coming when each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and give account of ourselves and our response to the gospel. And many have probably heard of the old poem, The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson, which is a poem about trying to run away from God. It's not easy reading. The poet gives us a picture of running from Christ and Christ coming after us like a hound that does not tire, that does not relent, even as we flee from him. He calls to us, he offers us life, he brings beauty and life that are found nowhere else. He is there calling and coming after, and there's no escaping him. You may reject him ultimately, but you then will face him as your judge, and you must then stand and plead your own righteousness, of which you have none. And that brings us to the welcome. Listen to the verses again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The accusation against Jesus is he receives sinners. That's good news for sinners. That's gospel good news. Another poet, hymn writer by the name of Charlotte Elliott, once said what so many wrongly believe. She said, I suppose I must make myself worthy to be accepted by him. And she later realized, that's not the case. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy because we have already, as we've already pointed out, we're sinners. And when Charlotte Elliott came to understand that she wrote about being able to come to Christ, just as she was, she wrote these words, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. 
The Pharisees complained about Jesus receiving sinners in the first verses of Luke 15, and that's followed, you'll see in, the, in that passage, the larger passages of Luke 15, by three parables that constitute some of the best passages in the Bible. We read the parable of the lost sheep, and then there's the, you know, we get this picture, this word picture of a good shepherd who goes out looking for one sheep that's lost. And at the end of that, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus isn't pulling any punches with the Pharisees here. He's saying the scribes and Pharisees think they are righteous enough not to need to repent. They thought they didn't need a shepherd to come looking for them. They thought they were already in the sheepfold. Think of the Pharisees and the tax collectors. The two that went up to pray, the Pharisee prayed proudly about himself. Remember him? The tax collector stood at a distance and beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And of this, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the rest of Luke 15, we have two more parables that that of the lost coin, which ends with the same message as the lost sheep. And then there's the parable of the lost son, which we call the prodigal. And you remember the story, the youngest of two sons runs off, squanders his inheritance, and later when he's broken, he repents, comes back, hoping to simply be treated as a servant. What he finds is a father running out to welcome him home throwing a party to celebrate. And the elder brother wants none of it. He will not join the party because he couldn't stand all this talk of sinners being received with grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ received sinners, even older brothers. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, Jesus Christ receives sinners and praise God he doesn't leave them. He doesn't leave us in our sin. It sanctifies us as his disciples. Tonight we're installing Isaiah as your pastor of outreach. His job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry in leading and equipping you to fulfill the great commission. To take the gospel out into the world full of sinners who desperately need the Savior. His work is to help you, the congregation of Fourth Presbyterian Church, to boldly proclaim to a lost and dying world that Jesus receives sinners. That's exciting work. As you support missionaries and mission partnerships around the world, the mission is global and it's local. God in his good providence has brought nations to our doorstep. Therefore, Fourth Presbyterian has gotten deeply involved in with things like Mission DMV. Follow Isaiah as he leads y'all in supporting homeless ministries, Cornerstone Christian Academy, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, ESL, Alpha, and other ministries. Isaiah is a sinner whom Jesus has received. If you are trusting by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have that in common with all true Christians. And now it's our joy and our privilege 
to tell others of Jesus. God has called Isaiah to a great work. He is calling you as the congregation to follow in that work. Go tell the world about Jesus. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. The scribes and Pharisees meant it as a condemnation. Praise the Lord, it's the truth that gives us hope. Let's pray. Our gracious and mighty Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, knowing that in him we are accepted in the beloved. And we come as those with nothing in our hands, simply clinging to the cross. And we thank you for what is ours in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to use us as ready instruments in your hands to tell others about the love and the mercy that we have received in Christ. Lord, lead us and guide us for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.